COVID may be something we do not want to think about, but it is important that we carry on trying to understand the effects of this devastating virus. With Dr. Daniel Martins de Souza, we will be looking into the neural effects of COVID. Listen in to find out how it affects the brain. Introduction. Today, we will be covering Dr. Daniel Martins de Souza's paper, Looking into COVID-19. This conversation was really interesting for me because I have wanted to learn more about the neural effects of COVID for quite some time. Furthermore, I have always tried to work with more international students, international researchers. I've wanted to cover COVID-19 for quite some time. So hi Daniel, um, welcome to the podcast and could you tell me a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Hi, Abdullah. Thank you for the invitation here. I'm Daniel Martins de Souza. I'm an associate professor in, at the University of Campinas. Yep. We call Unicamp here in Brazil, okay. where I've been teaching since 2014. Before that, I, you know, I'm a biologist. My undergrad, I did biology, and then I have a PhD in biochemistry. Then I spent six years in Europe for a postdoc, four of these years as a postdoc, uh, two of them in Germany, the Max Planck Institute of Psychiatry, and then another uh, additional two years in the University of Cambridge, there in the UK. And then what I returned- to go to Germany and the, like, what made you start to move around quite a bit, was it? I was actually about to do a collaboration with a professor in Cambridge, mm-hmm. and that collaboration actually became a, a, former, a formal postdoc in her lab actually I, I couldn't I couldn't get funded from Germany to the UK I, I used to have a stipend from from the Max Planck and I couldn't move around with the stipend and then actually this professor who which I would collaborate she actually hired me and then I had a job offer back in Germany again and then I returned to Germany as a, a PI for additional two years and then after that I, I returned to Brazil in 2014. You said you did biology in the beginning. So what got you to the kind of the interest area that you're in now? Was it quite like, was it quite in your mind like, oh, this is the area I'm interested in while you're doing the biology course or develop a lot over time? I actually didn't know what I wanted for my professional life. You know, when I was in the high school, I was really in doubt on what to choose. Mm -hmm. And I decided to choose something I like. It's simple like that, Uh you know, and I like biology very much. I was very much interested. Actually, at that point, you know, n- nowadays I know I would like to be an academic. Okay. But at that point, I, I couldn't figure that out, you know. And then I was thinking either I was going to study biology mm-hmm. or history or, you know, oh, human science, something like that. That's, yeah, That's exactly the same as me. With me, it was the same college. It was either biology or history, literally. All right. The two things that I was like, those are the two I'm really interested in. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, reason would it have been modern history or would it have been something else? I like history from the 20th century. Okay. You know, the great wars and this sort of stuff. I, I always, it always caught my attention, you know, and I liked it very much. I mean, I always attributed that to my teachers at that time when I had great teachers from biology, biology and history teachers. And then I think they made me like it. But Nowadays, I know that I probably liked the academic point of view, you know, the, the studying and, and having more deepening my view on, on the subjects. You know? yeah. uh, but I, I don't have any scientists in my family. Then 
I just figured that out once I got to undergrad school in biology because I ended up choosing biology because I thought that study history, you start understanding the world in such a depth that eventually it's difficult to deal with politics and this sort of stuff. Yeah. And I thought that biology would be more fun. Was it a particular, like, when you're doing the biology course, what, what areas mainly interested you? Was it always kind of the human side or were you also interested more in the animal side, plants? Yeah, actually, when I got into the university, I got acquainted to all these different disciplines and everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wonder that I might be a zoologist. Zoologist. Oh. I, I'd like animals very much. Yeah. And then particularly, I was wondering about studying sharks. You know, I like, you know, these sort of studies. And then at some point I was, it was getting my attention. And then I started doing, because of a friend of mine actually went to the biochemistry classes and then he got a kind of internship in a biochemistry lab. And then I said, you know, I'll go with you just to see how it is. And I never left, you know, actually I've started doing during my undergrad here in Brazil, during undergrad studies, yeah. we have, you can develop a project, small project, what we call scientific initiation. Mm-hmm. And then you develop a kind of a very small PhD, let's say, you know, or a master. It's a year time, one year. Oh, that is quite long. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to write a project, you know, eventually you can get funded for that. You can oh. get like a stipend for this. And then you develop this project for one year. Yeah. And so you get all the training in the lab and everything, you know. So actually when we finish our undergrad here in Brazil, people that actually went through this scientific initiation, they are pretty much ready to a PhD, you know, because they yeah, they have the like, whole lab experience and everything. Technically is a master's like Yeah, exactly. Like, this is how in Europe a master's works. Yeah, you know, that matches yeah. my master's. That literally is my master's. So mm-hmm. Yeah. It's Here we also have a master's, but a master's would be like a PhD in two years, let's say. Oh, so it's a bit it's, longer. It's, okay. it's more formal, you know. Normally we defend dissertation yeah. and with you know with other professors and everything. Yeah. I actually, because of the scientific initiation project I've done, even in Brazil, normally you have to do the master's to go to the PhD afterwards. But eventually you can skip the master's if you had had a good training during yeah. the scientific initiation. And then I skipped the, the, the master's and went directly uh, to the PhD. Okay. Yeah. And in terms of the research you're doing now, when did that become your kind of area of interest? Was it yeah. quite recently or were your postdocs linked to what you're doing now? Actually, it was during my PhD, you know, because the, the thing is that I, I'm a biochemist. I have a PhD in biochemistry because I was mostly focusing on proteomics. Mm-hmm. And then during my scientific initiation, you know, the sort of small masters we have, uh, I was researching a bacteria, actually looking at proteins associated to a bacteria, uh, which caused uh, very big losses on citrus uh, production here in Brazil. Mm-hmm. You know, citrus is, is something that's one of the biggest kind of agricultural agricultural productions we have in Brazil. Yeah, because there's one fact that. I always remember it's like 70% of the world's, I think it's oranges are produced in Brazil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It makes sense. Is this bacteria yeah. like hard to grow in labs or is it quite, is it like E. coli? It's like. Yeah, exactly. It was a bacteria called uh, Xylella fastidiosa. This is a, a slow growing bacteria that caused one of, one of several diseases in citrus. Mm-hmm. And then I was studying that, but. 
you know, I was very happy with the biochemistry part, with the analytical part, yeah. the proteomics part. But, you know, human studies always called my attention. And then that's when, during my PhD, I looked for a supervisor which could guide me through something more human. Yeah. Still using the same analytical tools I was learning about it because I always liked it. Uh, but then uh, my, my PhD supervisor actually... Um, opened the door so I could study uh, mental diseases. And that's when in my PhD, uh, I started working with schizophrenia. And I still do that. You know, actually, the reason we are talking here today is because of COVID study that we've developed lab. But this was just because we wanted to help in this regard. Now, I'm not a biologist or anything. I'm actually studying mental disorders. And I mean, it's just because I was, I always thought that was very fascinating, you know, brain and you know, what models do you use for schizophrenia? Do you use like cell models or animal models, and how do you create them? Yeah, here in the lab, we we mostly use cell models, yeah. cellular models. These we have several in vitro models, which are induced pluripotent stem cell derived cells, neural yeah. cells. You know, like uh, neurons, astrocytes, uh, brain organoids, this sort of things. Do you create three D models, or do you still use two D cultures? Yeah, we mostly use 2D, but we also have some works using 3D models, neurospheres and brain organoids. Mm -hmm. That's what we normally use as a 3D model. We do have also a line of research where we investigate proteins and lipids associated to uh, antipsychotic medication. And then for that, we collect cell uh, samples, blood samples from patients. Not we, but we have collaborations with psychiatric hospitals that collect blood samples from patients. Is your research trying to understand fundamental mechanisms of the disease drugs instead like which or both yeah it's both but i would say 80 percent of what we do is more regarding basic science around uh, biological mechanisms that might be involved with schizophrenia and other psychiatric disorders but then we have yeah. these other 20 percent where we look at samples from patients trying to figure out you know molecular signatures or proteins and lipids that can indicate whether someone is likely or not to respond to a a given medication. And this is a curious question. What's your opinion on psychoactive drugs like, what's it called? That mushroom that they're trying to use. Psilocybin. Yeah, yeah psilocybin. For yeah, psilocybin. You know, I've, I have a collaboration with a couple of colleagues here in Brazil, who is Steven Schreng, and Luis Fernando Toffoli, and also Siddhartha Ribeiro, which we got involved in studies using psychedelics here. Yep. And then we mostly were, I mean, we're employing some of those analytical tools we have in the lab, mostly mass spec-based proteomics and, and metabolomics to look at 3D models like brain organoids treated with those substances, had been looking also for effects of these substances, you know, uh, neural branches or uh, using neural stem cell derived cells. And we collaborate on this regard. More recently, we've even published a couple of papers on using cannabinoids, you know, like cannabidiol or THC treated cells, better understand the molecular mechanisms that these drugs can trigger, which are similar to those drugs uh, used for schizophrenia, for example, antipsychotics, you know. And then we have some similarities, some peculiarities for these drugs, and try to correlate this to medication response in a way of looking whether these drugs might be good for treating psychiatric disorders. We are not, of course, not all the only ones doing that. You know, there's several people doing that. But I had a postdoc. Her name was Valeria, Valeria de Almeida. 
She's now a researcher in Germany, and then she brought this cannabinoid investigation here to the lab. And we recently published some, some articles about it. So your main research is working on mental disorders. So are you still going to be doing more COVID work related to this paper, or is this just a one-off type thing? Yeah, this paper you, you've seen, it's one of those. Uh, actually, it's the one I, together with other colleagues, led. But we did participate of other research regarding COVID-19. We, we, I think we have about five or six papers published on this, on this subject here uh, right now. But we, we participated on those, you know, employing those tools that we have here in the lab. But the one you, you, you mentioned, you know, that, that we published in the PNAS, yeah. this one was led by me and other uh, three colleagues. Uh. And we are just finishing up some, some other studies, a couple of studies which were developed here in the lab. But it's not my intention to continue in the field. You know, okay. it's only if it's there's something like a colleague that needs some some help on this regard. But I think we we gave our contribution in the past two years. At the end of the day, I, we're gonna have about seven or eight publications, and I think this is enough. You know, it's like a it's not my main focus. It's it it, it doesn't tend to be. But I think at that point when the pandemic started, we felt that we could help somehow because we have this. Uh, in vitro models, we have uh, all these mass spec-based analytical tools here to be used, and then embarked on that to 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 help a little bit. But I think we are we are done with that. Not that, I mean, not that COVID doesn't still doesn't do, do, uh, need attention. You know, I think it does. But for us, we are. I mean, we 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 gave our contribution. Yeah, that that makes sense. And how 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 old is your lab now, and how big is it? Like, how many members do you have? Uh-huh. I've started here in Brazil. I came back, actually, I, I, I teach nowadays in my alma mater. You know, I, I studied here at the same university I'm teaching nowadays and researching as well. Mm-hmm. And I started my lab here in 2014. It's been eight years. Okay. When I came back to Brazil, I actually got funded by the Sao Paulo Research Foundation. It's called FAPESP. It's a funding agency, a public funding agency from the state of Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is within Brazil, of course. And they have a program to attract people back to Brazil, which is called a Young Investigator Grant. You know? And then I actually got promoted in a, in a selection here to get a professorship. It's a kind of tenure-track professorship. Mm-hmm. And then I got funded by FAPESP with this Young Investigator Grant. This is a very, this is a substantial grant. You know, it's an interesting one. I, I could build my whole lab here with this grant of equipment and all the consumables for research. My lab was bigger already, you know, at some point we were 15 people here. I guess now we are about 12 people among postdocs and students, plus and a technician, we must be about 14 people now. But, but here in, in Brazil, that's not an exactly big lab, you know, it's a kind of a mm-hmm. medium to big lab. There's big lab would be something more than 20 people. And it's not uncommon here. Okay. But it's different from Europe. 15 people in the lab, it's a big one. Yeah, so it, that's why I, I was like, whoa, like the labs I'm used to are normally five people. So yeah, five exactly. It's, as I said, a medium to big lab, you know, 15 people. But I think at some point we had almost 20 people. But also I felt that the, the, the quality and quantity of you can do, it doesn't depend on how many people you have. Yeah. You know, it depends more on how much the people work and dedicate themselves and do you do a mix of lab work and computer work using analytical tools and do you use any programming languages or something? Yeah, actually, 
I employed, because of proteomics data, we employed a lot of those in silico tools for systems biology analysis, mm-hmm. which we mostly have done using those already, you know, ready softwares or websites. Yep. But I do have a PhD student now that he's dedicated on doing their own or our own algorithms for data analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, we I said our own because it's for our lab, but of course he's the one who is doing this. Yeah, yeah. And his name is Guilherme. And he has a funny story because Guilherme actually started with his PhD on very bench work, you know, very going to the wet lab. Mm-hmm. And then at some point things didn't work. And then he liked it to analyze data. And then he went for doing a course, you know, and then he started programming a little bit. Mm-hmm. And suddenly now he's a nice programmer, you know, a very good programmer. Oh. <clears throat> he's been writing his uh, his own algorithms mm-hmm. and compiling, you know, other different uh, tools in a way that can be something more tailor-made for what we need. You know, and then, but that, that's not the biggest part of our lab. You know, most of the people have work doing uh, on either molecular biology or biochemistry in terms of mass spec-based proteomics and metabolomics. We have uh, several people working on cell biology as well, as I, as yeah. I already told you. But there's some people dedicated now to analyze data more in a, in a, in a dry lab, let's say. Now moving on to the paper, could you give a brief overview of the main findings and the main like the reason for you doing the paper? Sure. Actually, uh, you know, here in Brazil, we've, uh, there's a, there was big lessons from um, the pandemics. And one of them was that if, if we want to do, um, you know, a, a competitive research, we have to collaborate much more. Yeah. And uh, I think this is pretty much, you know, known by all scientists mm-hmm. but uh but here in brazil this i think this situation you know with others that also we faced here like uh, zika virus the problem we had with zika virus before uh showed us that we have to collaborate uh much more if we want to do you know good research yeah. or at least and good and competitive i mean in a way of really bringing things that can help and 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 contribute significantly to that field and uh and then we started here in the lab doing research on, on COVID because we uh, saw in the, in, the, in the news that several, firstly, several people were losing their ability to smell yeah. whenever they were infected with COVID. Anosmia, they have this inability to smell. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we thought was like, you know, if people are losing the, the ability to smell, this is something controlled by the brain. You know, is there something to do with the brain? Yeah. And at that point, was that, that was a respiratory disease. You know, afterwards we we've, we've seen that this is a very much versatile virus, right? And also, uh, we've started observing that thirty percent of the people, and this is a given fact and a, a given a, a data from from the clinics, more than thirty percent of the COVID affected people have neurological symptoms. Hmm. And then we definitely thought that something there might be something to do with the brain. And then at that point, we some questions were posed, you know, and not only us, but other groups here in Brazil started looking at the same questions. We start talking about that with, among colleagues. Now, here in my lab, I was telling some of my colleagues, we are culturing astrocytes and trying to infect them with SARS-CoV-2. And I had a colleague here in the university looking at brain scans from patients and another colleague there in another campus here in Sao Paulo looking at the presence of the, the virus in the brain. 
And then we decided to get together and put all of this together to basically answer four questions. You know, one of them is, is COVID-19 able to modify the brain somehow, yeah. given the fact that people have these neurological symptoms? Mm-hmm. And the other question is, especially if so, the first question is yes, is the, the virus getting to the brain? And the other question was, if the virus is getting there, how does it do it? You know, what's the way it takes for getting to the brain? And finally, what does it do once in the brain? Mm-hmm. Right? These are, I think, the four main questions. And then we, we actually tackled those by looking at three different types of samples, which were living patients, brains from people that unfortunately died of, out of COVID-19, mm-hmm. and culture cells infected with the virus. And then we put together a team of almost 90 people, 90 people around Sao Paulo and different campus, university campus in Sao Paulo, but also people from Rio de Janeiro, for example, other states in, in Brazil, to take tackle these questions. And then I am the corresponding author with three other colleagues, who is Thiago Cunha from the University of Sao Paulo, myself from the University of Campinas, so as Marcelo Mori, also from my department here, and there is Clarissa Yasuda, who is a neurologist here in the, the hospital of our university. And then basically the story starts as Clarissa was in, in her team were scanning the brains of people that got affected by COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And these were 81 patients, which were mildly affected. You know, they didn't even get hospitalized. And they were two months after the diagnosis, COVID-19 diagnosis. And what she found is that these people have differences in the cortical structure of their brains. In some parts of the brains, they are thinner, sometimes they're thicker, but something in their brain changed significantly. She got part of these 81 people, 61 of them to be more precise, and submit them to cognitive tests. And she's seen that, long story short, that they performed, the performance were worse than people that were not affected by COVID-19. More than that, these people that were suffering from problems in, the, in memory processing and also in, in, the, in the speed of thinking, they were more affected by depression and anxiety symptoms. Okay, so this would give us the first answer is that COVID-19 is somehow affecting the brain of people that got infected. And then the second question was, but does the virus get to the brain? And this is the part that Thiago Cunha led there in the University of Sao Paulo, in the campus of Ribeirão Preto. Mm-hmm. The University of Sao Paulo here in Brazil is a big university. They, they have campuses everywhere. And they are in a city called Ribeirão Preto. And then there, Thiago and Alexandre Fabro, who is a neuropathologist, mm-hmm. they've evaluated 26 brains collected from people that died out of COVID. They took a bit of these brains and looked for the presence of the virus there. And this part was actually done by a postdoc. At that time, was postdoc. Now he's a professor. His name is Flavio Veras. And Flavio could find the presence of the virus, meaning that he found the main protein the virus have, which is the spike protein, and also the double-stranded RNA, which is the, the genetic material of the virus, within the brain of five people out of those 26, almost 20% of the patients, had the virus in the brain, in the brain tissue. And, and also one interesting fact is that those viruses were 
mostly infecting a cell called astrocytes, right? And astrocytes, just to be brief, you know, it's one type of cell that we have in the brain. Actually, we have more astrocytes in our brain than neurons, just so people that are hearing remember about it. But our brain is composed by two cell types, which are neurons and glial cells. Among the glial cells, there are these astrocytes. And astrocytes are mostly doing this. The communication among neurons are mediated by astrocytes, especially because they clean up the conversation about among neurons by dealing with the, the neurotransmitters, which are being sent to, to a neuron to another. And also uh, astrocytes provide energy to these cells. And this is a very important thing because, uh, you know, neurons depend upon astrocytes very much so they can uh, do their own, they can develop, they can do their own roles well. So, so then, are they actually star-shaped or is that kind of just a... Yeah, I mean, the astrocytes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the name astrocytes comes yeah. exactly from cells, which seems like true, you know, which yeah. is uh, stars, right, in Greek. And then and Flavio found the SARS-CoV-2 present in five out of 26 brain specimens that he analyzed. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, you know, again, COVID-19 can modify the brain and the virus is able to get there. This from the, the fact that we have five out of 26 detected, the virus detected in their brains, meaning that, you know, everyone that is definitely not everyone that is suffering from neurological symptoms it's a meaning of having the virus in the brain. The main message is that the, the virus can get there, able to get there. So, and also one thing that we looked at was that Victor Corazola, who is one of the first authors of this paper together with Flavio, he looked at the proteome of those brains infected with COVID-19, uh, uh, with SARS-CoV-2, collected from patients that died out of it. And then with the proteomics, he could find that deficits or at least modifications on energy metabolism, cell death, proteins associated to neurodegeneration were among the most affected biological processes in those brains. Mm -hmm. So then again, COVID-19 can modify the brain and the virus is able to get there. How does it get there? I mean, this was something that at that time we were studying it. There were some leads coming up in the literature. Then we didn't go much into how does the virus come from outside to inside the brain? But Flavio actually discovered something very interesting is that the astrocytes were not infected using the main port of entrance or the main door that the virus get to get into brain cells or into human cells, which is the ACE2 receptor. Yep. Because, you know, Fernanda Kronfli, who is the third, uh, one of the, first authors of the paper were actually she was actually infecting astrocytes here in, in, in our lab and these were neural stem cell derived human astrocytes and she could be able to infect them she could be able to see the virus inside and everything but when she looked for ace2 receptors these cells simply didn't have and then we were thinking like well it's using a different port of entrance right and then Flavio there in Ribeirão Preto, he found out a way of trying to test this. He looked at some single cell data and also some data that were coming up in the literature. And we had some candidates of other receptors that could let the, the virus in. And he tested one of them, which is the neuropilene one. Then he made some tests that he blocked this neuropilene one and didn't block using a 
modify the virus and could prove that SARS-CoV-2 is, is using neuropelin-1 actually to enter brain cells, specifically astrocytes. So we didn't look at how the virus get from the, the environment to into the brain, mm-hmm. but we did see that actually to get into brain astrocytes, these cells are using a different port of entrance, a different door, unlocking a different door to get into the cells. And then we went to what does the virus do to the brain? And then as I, as I said, Fernanda here in, in Campinas, she was infecting this astrocyte with SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. And Victor look, looked again to the proteome of these cells and their proteome, infected proteome, overlapped very much with what we've seen in post-mortem brains proteome. Mm-hmm. Again, and that's why we look more into using other tools into the energy metabolism. And we've proven that these were very much affected by the infection of SARS-CoV-2. And not only us, but again, other studies in the literature were showing the importance of the energy metabolism, glycolysis in particular, the role of HIF-1-alpha, you know, mediating all of these effects in other human cells, but also in the brain. And then we could see that uh, energy metabolism is something important. And again, just remind that astrocytes are very vital, you know, for energy metabolism in the brain because it does provide energy to neurons, for example, in their synapses. And it's something very important that astrocytes do in the brain, Mm -hmm. meaning that they cannot deal in producing energy properly. And that's what we've seen using these other tools in infected cells. Definitely the the brain is not going to work properly, you know, because neurons depend on this energy coming from the energy and other, um, I think it's a glutamate and other yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, glutamate, for example, and and also this uh, neurotransmitter recycling is also that was affected on cells which were infected. And another interesting thing that Fernanda found out was that when she grew astrocytes in the media and infect those, and then she got this this media which we call a media that was, you know, uh, used by these infected astrocytes. Mm-hmm. And then we grew neurons on this media, which were infected astrocytes before. Mm-hmm. And we see that, that neurons that are grown into this media, they die much more even when neurons are directly infected. You know, if you infect a, a neuron directly in vitro, they die less or they take longer to die than when this neuron is grown in a media which were habitated by astrocytes before, infected astrocytes before, meaning that astrocytes are producing something or some things which are toxic to the brain or toxic to neurons. And this might be even correlated to what Vitor saw about proteins associated to necroptosis and cell death in their postmortem brains. Okay. So then these were the findings, you know, we've seen that uh, in living people, uh, COVID-19 somehow modifies the brain shape, you know, it's not something very big. But it's, it is significant, right? We've seen that the virus can get into the brain and specifically infect astrocytes whenever it gets there and whenever it's able to get to the brain. And once in the brain, once into this astrocyte, it modifies the way astrocytes produces energy, the way astrocytes deal with neurotransmitters, which is important for neuron conversation as astrocytes is part of the neuronal conversation. And also we've seen that astrocytes promote kind of toxic environment for neurons. And that might be associated to what we are seeing, this brain modifications in terms of structure. And these were, you know, the main findings that we had. 
when the astrocytes, were they human astrocytes or were they uh, produced from Nobel board? Yeah, th these were human astrocytes. We, we cultured here. We, we had those pluripotent stem cells, mm -hmm. which we actually differentiated in neural stem cells. These neural stem cells, they, they can become any type of yeah. brain cell, yeah. right? And then from those, we derived astrocytes. Mm -hmm. And these are neuron astrocytes, uh, human astrocytes, yes. Yeah, now, as I told you, we are differentiating those induced pluripotent stem cells in neural stem cells mm -hmm. and neural stem cells in astrocytes. These are all using proper media for that. You know, we have like a media recipe mm -hmm. which drives these cells to be a different type of cell. And it's not it's like, something fancier than that. Is that recipe open for everyone or is that specific to labs? Because I'm always curious about this. I'm sorry, can, can you ask again? Method you use, is that specific to your lab? This, oh, these are available thing. protocols, you know, there's mm -hmm. several of them, it's not something difficult to do. I think it's the difficult part is to get these pluripotent stem cells. These, I would say it's more, it's more sophisticated type of cell culture, but it's not something we do in our labs. Uh, it, it, uh, we are more, let's say, more those that use protocols which are published. Uh, okay. We had collaboration with, as I said, with a professor called Steven Schering here in Brazil. He's at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro in, in a private institute called IDOR. And there in their lab, they've undifferentiated or reprogrammed fibroblasts, which are skin cells, to induce pluripotent stem cells. And then we picked these cells from them differentiated to neural stem cells and those from to astrocytes using only you know already available and published protocols why do you think covid affects the astrocytes more specifically i think there's some benefit for it to do that like, yeah actually i think it's probably you no know, given the the way the way the virus takes to get to the brain in any way probably the first cell they will encounter are astrocytes from the blood-brain barrier or from wherever these viruses are coming from, mm -hmm. the first neural cells they will encounter are astrocytes. And then probably, you know, if the infection got really worse in the whole system, you know, eventually the person will die before this is spread out to the whole brain. But the tendency is that it might be able to get to any brain cell then, but probably we picked up more into astrocytes because it's probably the first cell will this this the, the virus will encounter. Uh, okay. Simple like that. Yeah. It might it might have a kind of a tropism, preferred tropism, but I, I don't believe. I think it's just because they bumped into a astrocyte first. You know, that's so it. New, because there's so many of them there. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And one thing that we've observed in vitro at least is that Astrocytes are very resistant. They are somehow very, they, they do not release those, uh, those uh, viruses so, uh, so often, you know, and also they not even produce, eventually they don't always produce uh, viable particles, you know, somehow they are, they're, they're very, like they're very they're degrading the stuff inside, like they, yeah, breaking down the virus. Sometimes. Yeah. And things also, I don't know if there is a kind of a, there might be, you know, it's a crazy idea that we, we discussed here that mm -hmm. even evolutionary, in evolutionary terms, these cells somehow might be tougher, you know, to uh, handle this sort of infection so they can somehow protect the brain, you know. It makes sense but, because 
astrocytes because I've like in Alzheimer's and so on, they go around cleaning up like proteins that kind of turn uh-huh. into like stick like that cause problems really and kind of like garbage as you would like kind yeah. of build. so they go around cleaning that so it would make sense so they would also be good at defending the body from viral exactly viruses. yeah yeah that's why i think it, it's it, you know if in evolutionary terms they might be tougher cells you know more more resistant and somehow uh, this can protect the brain you know on the other hand the problem is that in the case of COVID-19, the case of SARS-CoV-2, uh, the virus messes up parts of the, the astrocytes, which are very important to the whole brain. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the energy metabolism machinery, for example, or, you know, the, the um, while metabolizing the, the neurotransmitters like glutamate, for example. Mm-hmm. And these are things that may affect brain function, you know, but at least uh, the virus themselves might not be released so uh, uh, um, easily into the, the, the rest, rest of the brain. Mm. And what kind of techniques did you use? And do you think this research could or would be able to be replicated quite easily in other labs? Or is it quite hard? Like, would it, take, would it be quite time-consuming to do? Yeah, I, I think it's totally replicable. I mean, we didn't use any tools which were very much sophisticated, you know, I would say they are sophisticated tools, yeah. but they're pretty much implemented everywhere. You know, it's, uh, yeah. Cause I, I always like asking this question. Cause like some, sometimes the papers I read, like it's really good research, but when you're reading, you're thinking how easy is this for another lab to mm-hmm. do if it's quite specialized, I always think. Uh, yeah. There are two things. I think it's part of the study are uh, imaging studies an imaging research and then this part is more specific you know you need like a, a scan like to do the mris and and everything this is not so common but for people that works on imaging it would be pretty much okay to replicate and the thing is i think the most important part would be like have a safety lab that can deal with SARS-CoV-2 because they're highly infectable then you have to use like the you have to have a biological safety lab to deal with SARS-CoV-2 of course here in, in our institution we have Jose Luis Modena, who is a virologist and deals with this top security type of lab, biological lab. And then we send cells to his lab and then they infect it there, you know, and then neutralize these before sending us back. Okay. We were analyzing the cells afterwards. You know, Fernanda, who is the first author of this paper I mentioned, she, she learned how to do that. She was trained to do that. And she was doing the infections in Professor Modena's lab. Mm-hmm. But then... But this, this, I would think it's not something very easy to do. You know, you have to find a proper lab to do it. Mm. But the other things like proteomics or all the cell cultures we've done and, you know, the imaging studies for the, the uh, immune histochemistry we've done for brain tissue, it's something pretty much doable in any facility, I would say. And now moving on to extra advice, what advice would you give to students who want to kind of enter into the neuroscience or into um, research into mental disorders? Because I know you don't learn a lot about them in like undergraduate courses and so on. So many people might not even come across it. So they might never realize, like they might think, oh, I'm interested in it. I want to go in it. Then how do they get into that area? For someone who wants to, to be a scientist, the first thing is to be curious and be driven. 
because I, I tell my students that whenever you embark on this type of career, it depends pretty much on you. It's like I tell my students that the person who knows the most about their PhD thesis is their own. You know, they, they are the own the ones who knows the most about it, right? And they have to be the ones who knows the most about it. Because kind of you have to dedicate your your professional career to decipher the questions you're you're posing for your PhD. They might not work, you know, and I think it science it's uh might be tough field because it's we are all the time failing, right? Mm-hmm. You do an experiment and fail, try to prove something and fail, you know. We I think across the career you fail more than you succeed. Yeah, definitely. But you know, taste of success, it's it becomes much more appreciated whenever you fail more than you yeah. succeed. And then it, it kind of becomes an addiction, right? Because you're following success, you know, for and success, I mean, for small questions, right? I mean, I want to do an experiment and make it work. Mm-hmm. That's a success, right? I'm not saying success, career success. The small ones that you take every day, you know, but uh, they, they become very tasty because the failing is much more frequent but then that's why i think you have to be resilient as well and and the resilience i i I don't i don't think there's something special to be prepared for maybe it's just that you know keeping in mind that you might fail and that's part of the process and definitely when you fail you learn much more than when you succeed Mm -hmm. right and then i think it's the, the what i the advice i give is this you know be prepare to dedicate yourself to something that only you can do. I mean, your supervisor or lab technician, nobody can do for you your PhD or your postdoc project. Only you can do it. It depends on you to do it. And it depends on you, dedicate time to be more successful than failing, you know, Mm. and learn from, from failing. It's part of the process. Nowadays, we are living a life where every, every, everybody wants to post something in their social media every day, which was nice and successful and beautiful. And, and eventually you get to the end of the day has something and doesn't have anything to post in your social media. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, yeah. right? Whenever you have it, you post it. But if you don't have that today, just go to sleep, you know, take a rest. Next day you try again. Right. I keep that in mind when I'm doing my PhD, definitely. Yeah. And in terms of neuroscience, you know, I think it's an important thing is that if possible, tell your supervisor, if that's not the case, to be near to a clinic that can offer something you're working about. You know, because eventually when you say, I'm working on neuroscience, people are either directly or marginally around a brain disease, either a, a neurological disease, a neurodegenerative disease, or a psychiatric disorder. And I think the experience on somehow having contact with these patients, it's very valuable and drives you to work even more. Whenever you see, because there's people that embark on this, for example, I want to study psychiatric disorders because I have a relative which has, I don't know, depression, for example. And this is a close contact with a person. But if you don't have like a close contact with the, the disease you're studying, 
even if marginally, even if you're studying something that might be related to Alzheimer's, for example, right? Yeah. It's nice to be in contact with these people that have these mm -hmm. infirmities because you see more of a purpose of what you're doing, you know, and that drives you to work more and want more to look for your answers. And where could they find information about, would you recommend them reading papers about it or other specific textbooks or something? Or, or, or... Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend a specific one. I think we have, especially, you know, during pandemics, there were quite a number of review articles coming out because I think people had this time to write and study a little bit more. And there's quite a number of good review papers on, on the literature, especially those published on, on serious journals, at least those we know the most, yeah. which would be a very nice and well, you know, illustrated information. Especially there's this nice paper from the, the biggest journals that even have really good illustrations from biological processes involved in diseases and neuroscience and everything. I, I wouldn't recommend one specifically, but... By looking at those review papers from top journals, for example, you might get acquainted with the main references on your area and then start following these guys in Google Scholar, for example, and getting nice information and, and fresh information about it. And because uh, being a scientist, do you get time to do anything else apart from the science? Yeah, it's, it's definitely important that you have something, some time to do something else, right? Mm -hmm. And we scientists are not the best people and having hobbies if you ask around you know it's difficult to find scientists that have true hobbies yeah. but I, I do have some you know i have two kids to start oh, with nice. uh, which i'd like i love old spending. Are, they? are they quite young i have a daughter who is one year and three months old oh, she's quite young and her name is bella mm -hmm. and i have a son yeah. whose name is emmanuel his name uh, he is almost seven years old yeah and then that's quite big different worlds you know because Bella it's more it's a different kind of kid as Emmanuel but it's both very much fun it's very nice are you thinking of turning them into scientists or you yeah know? you know I'm, Emmanuel he's very much into dinosaurs you know I think oh, nice. every kid is somehow yeah. but he's truly in you know it's like recently visiting a dinosaur museum yeah. he, he met there uh, one of a scientists a Brazilian scientist which is very and then they talked to each other a little bit and then Emmanuel knew all the names and, you know, species and classes and everything. The guy got really... They're interesting, but the only one I ever remember is this one with like a stone thing on his tail. He would know the name. I have no idea what the yeah, name Yeah, this is the... Yeah, yeah, so I forgot the name as well. But I know the one you're meaning. Yeah, he, he would know for sure, you know. And he knows like the different, you know, types, what they eat and everything. You know, he's well, very much yeah, into that it. Is... I think all kids are interested in that. But with me, it was mainly just looking at them and like just seeing them, maybe knowing like the name or two then. I never really went into like, what they eat and all that. Like, yeah, no, he, he does. Yeah. yeah, he does have books about it. He reads it and he's very much into it. And, and it was fun one day because I asked him whether he would like to be a paleontologist or, or a biologist as I am, right? And then he goes like, well, a biologist, I, I already am. I'll try to be a paleontologist because he also likes to study biology and see those, yeah. those insects and arthropods and everything, right? Anyway, but he, he likes a lot, you know. Bella, she's still too young. Let's yeah. see. But but Emmanuel, it's very much in science. He, he likes a lot. And But I also have a, a rock band with oh, colleagues okay. here. Actually, part of them are also 
uh, authors on this paper we were talking about. I, I play like play. I play drums. Yeah. Oh, true. Yeah, and then I uh, I have other colleagues here in the department, and also one colleague from University of São Paulo. Mm -hmm. And every two weeks we rehearsal. You know, have you know some play together, and eventually we do a here and there show. You know, every oh, I don't cool. know three four months we can do some some rock around it. Right. Yeah. That's the first. That's the first kind of because normally scientists, if they do music, they normally go into classical music in terms of right. Yeah, the scientists I've met is like violin or piano or like the like or like the other types of instruments like that. They don't really do guitar or rock or drums or something like that. But yeah, it's true. I mean, I know some colleagues around it, and also they're going towards classical music. It's true. And how long you've been playing the drum? Is it since you were a kid, or did you pick it up? Yeah, I started playing with twelve years old, and I had a band when I was a teenager, you know. And then actually, my friends with whom I had the band when I was a teenager, they still play in their band, you know. I actually left because I went to the, the university to study. It was a different city. Then we eventually play, you know. I still have contact with these friends of, and eventually we play once a year, once every two years. But they do still have the the original band we used to have. And then when I got to the university, I had another band, you know. And then when, especially when I returned to Brazil, I got a band with these guys here from the institute and from the university. And this is this is fun. Otherwise, do you? This is another question. I said, do you do any like reading in terms of books, or do you not get the time? Because some scientists do, some don't. Some reading, you mean? Yeah, like I like to read, but recently I haven't been reading too much. It's like because it's really I'm lacking time, you know. Mm -hmm. Because of a small kid, eventually it gets difficult. Yeah, you know? that, that actually makes sense. Yeah, yeah. but 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 re recently I, I was reading a book. Actually, there is a I'm reading kind of very little parts, but there is a book about the guy who was the founder of our university here. In, in in Brazil, because the university where I am is, as I said, University of Campinas. Mm -hmm. We call Unicamp in Brazil, okay. which is a very known and well-recognized university here in Brazil, mm -hmm. but it's not much known abroad, okay. you know. And then um, that's mostly, I think, because it's a kind of youngish university. We are, we are about a little bit more than fifty years old, you know, in terms of. The university in the world, right? Yeah, it's, like, it's kind of a young university. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. And we are always in uh, world rankings on, for example, Latin American universities. Or this year, I think we ranked the second best university in Latin America. We had already been the first, the third. We are always about top three uh, in Latin America. And this is the, the, the most productive university per capita in Brazil because we are kind of small for Brazilian terms. But we produce the highest number of paper per, per faculty in Brazil. And this is because, you know, the university was meant to be a technological university, yeah. which is a different story from other universities here in Brazil. You know, normally, you know, the universities historically here in Brazil, they started putting together different schools. They had like higher schools, right, for agriculture or for law or for creation. And then, for example, University of Sao Paulo was founded by putting together four different schools, and then they started growing, right? Mm -hmm. But Unicampi, who is our, which is our university, started being like designed as a university. 
And this, I think, gives a different view of how it is because it has a main campus. It's everything in one place, you know, and it's even physically designed to be like integrative, you not know, to integrate the different types of sciences and everything. And I think this actually made the university this planning. And this was an university founded during military dictatorship, uh, you know, and also it's something interesting because even during a dictatorship, it was supported by the, the government. Mm-hmm. And then because it was an idea of having developed here high technology and everything. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm saying everything because I'm reading the book about the guy who founded the university, you know, and showing how planning, scientific planning and bringing the better brains to together, you know, can make good science. You know, it's, I think it's a way of reading supposed to be, it's supposed to be fun, right? But I'm reading something that actually would help me more in, in my work. I think reading is both like I have two types of books that I read. I read fun books like fiction, uh, right. like fiction. And then I also read books that are more to help me uh-huh. in terms of life and how to do stuff. So I always right. have that mix of books that I'm reading. Yeah, that's important. That's all the questions that I've got. But yeah, it's been great to- talking to you. Thanks for coming. Likewise. Okay, see ya. See ya. Bye. Bye. I've wanted to cover COVID-19 for quite some time. Not only because I find it interesting, but hopefully you will too. It's a fascinating paper, which I would highly recommend. Foremost amongst its findings is the fact that COVID seems to like astrocytes. I like this for some reason. I think it's because people always concentrate on neurons and think of neurons when they are thinking of the brain. But neurons are easily outnumbered by glial cells, and even more importantly, Astrocytes alone outnumber neurons as well, so we need to understand what affects astrocytes as well. The further finding from the paper was the fact that energy metabolism genes were affected the most. That's really important because neurons rely on astrocytes for their energy supply, and neurons don't work properly if the energy supply is affected. Think of it like trying to go for a run if you haven't eaten in a while. You're not going to do that well. I love the fact he used induced pluripotent stem cells because I believe they are the way forward in cell research for all fields, but especially for the nervous system, which has so many specialized regions and cells. They're using a single cell line or a few to model them. All is ineffective. Also, Cell lines are so different from human primary cells. So using induced pluripotent stem cells will get over this problem. I also learned something new. That they are effective cell models for neuropsychiatric diseases. I knew they were, but I did not know how widespread and effective their use would be. But Dr. Daniel Martins de Souza is using these models and I will definitely stay up to date on his research. I also believe that looking into these diseases will be extremely important. I believe this will be for His advice to read around the subject is important. How else are we meant to stay up to date on the topics and learn what we actually learn what we're actually interested in? Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you learned something new and be sure to check out the paper which I've linked in the description. Also 
check out the website for Brain Explained, where there'll be the rest of the episodes. And there's also a blog where we will be publishing blog posts about recent neuroscience. I'm also looking for anyone who'd be interested in contributing towards the blog. This would involve just writing blog posts about neuroscience research that's recently come out in the past week or two. It's a totally voluntary position, but it'd be great for you to keep up to date on neuroscience and also to improve your science communication skills. If this is something that interests you, I would be delighted to hear from you. And please contact me by the Twitter account or by the email address, which is brainexplained at outlook.com.